You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Election 2024, the Post Political Roundtable. I'm Sean Sullivan, the campaign editor here at the Washington Post. And today we continue our discussion about the 2024 presidential race with some of the top campaign reporters in our newsroom. First up today, Michael Shearer, national politics reporter here at The Post. Michael, welcome to Election 2024. So glad you could join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. So wanted to dive right in with the uh, the big news of today. Obviously, all eyes on the Middle East right now um, after Hamas attacked Israel. Israel has now declared war on Hamas. It's a very volatile situation abroad. But what about here domestically? What are we hearing from President Biden? And what are we hearing from some of the Republicans who are running against President Biden about this situation? Well, there's really been a bipartisan consensus for decades now about supporting Israel, uh, Israel's defense in, in the face of terrorist attacks, previous wars we've had. And I think what you're seeing from the president is, is a continuation of that. The focus of the White House has been on warning other countries not to get involved in this conflict. If you go back to the Yom Kippur War in, in 1967, the challenge for Israel was not just the Palestinians uh, uh, nearby, but other countries getting involved. Uh, and, and Biden has asked a carrier group to move closer to Israel as a warning, and he's given a press conference making very clear that the U.S. is watching what other countries do. Um, there's also going to be increased I mean, the U.S. has long been a major funder of the Israeli military. There have been requests for specific types of uh, weaponry and ammunition, and the U.S. has said they're taking that up. I think that the, the administration has also signaled that they're going to uh, roll uh, additional funding requests into an upcoming supplemental request uh, for Ukraine war funding, uh, which is pretty controversial right now on Capitol Hill and could complicate um, how that develops. In the presidential sphere, it, uh, it's been sort of also kind of predictable. Um, you know, the, the Republicans have, several Republican candidates like Tim Scott and uh, former President Trump have blamed Biden for these attacks, for the weakness uh, of the current administration and, uh, and for the administration's policy towards Iran, which is a funder of Hamas. But there is, it's important to say not evidence was yet that they were directly involved in, in this attack beyond uh, giving weapons to Hamas. Um, but that's sort of the political rhetoric we're used to on the campaign trail. It doesn't feel right now all that substantive. A lot of the discussion has been around the $6 billion uh, 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 in funds held in, in Korea that the, U, the U.S. government recently allowed to be um, released in exchange for some hostages that Iran was being held. Republicans are claiming that that is funding what's happening uh, in, in the Gaza, Gaza Strip right now. That's, that's not the case. The money actually hasn't gone out yet. Uh, there are restrictions on how the money can be used. It's also true that money is fungible. You can divert other funds to um, spend on what you want. But, but I think right now, in the, there, there is, the bottom line is there is unified response from Republicans and Democrats. Democrats about to support Israel. There's a lot of support for continued funding for Israel, um, and the and the political fighting on the campaign trail is not really that different from what we were hearing before, and really doesn't uh, engage with the actual foreign policy that's taking place. Yeah, it does sound very familiar, Michael. And to step back 
for a second. I mean, how big an issue is foreign policy in this race, both within the Republican primary as these candidates sort of duke it out with each other and as they try to draw distinctions with President Biden? Is this something that's been a focal point or just more of a back burner thing so far this year? It comes up, but it's not a central issue. And and it comes up usually, uh, you know, a couple steps removed. Republicans talk about foreign policy in terms of strength, uh, not in terms of actual policy. And so what you, you tend to hear most on the campaign trail is Republicans attacking Biden for being weak and allowing the Ukraine invasion by Russia or being weak and allowing this deal with Iran uh, for hostages. Um, but it's not a, a dominant thing that voters have been looking at. Now, I think the one exception to that that has gotten voters' attention is this question over what is the U.S.'s role with regards to Ukraine over the next you know, year to five years. It looks like this war there is going to be going on. And there you've seen a pretty sharp divide within the Republican primary field between sort of old school, Cold War era Reagan Republicans who have argued that uh, the U.S.'s role is to defend freedom everywhere, sort of a traditional 1980s approach. Uh, and, and Donald Trump and some of the newcomers to the um, uh, foreign policy discussion who have argued that uh, this is not really our problem, it distracts from what's going on in China, which is, is, should be more of a focus, and that, and that Europe should, should pick it up. Trump is like a like a wild card in all of this because he doesn't really engage in the details of anything. He he sort of says on the trail that if you just elect me, I'll solve it. You know, tomorrow I'm the kind of guy who can do that. Um, it, it it like you know that he'll get peace. He knows Putin. He knows all these people. That's very similar to the rhetoric he used in 2016, successfully to get elected. Um, but he really did struggle. Uh, history now shows to actually have those successes. He was very good at selling things like his meetings with Kim Jong-un in North Korea as major foreign policy successes, but they didn't really change much on the ground of the actual crises we face there. North Korea still has a nuclear weapons program, it's still doing missile tests, um, but, but, but Trump has been pretty successful at selling himself as sort of a savior in this regard. And you mentioned Donald Trump, Michael, obviously he's a focal point in this Republican primary right now as a clear polling leader. Uh, it was another busy week for him. He was back in a courtroom, and he also waded into this uh, now open race to become the next House Speaker, throwing his support publicly behind Jim Jordan. Can you talk to us a little bit about why Donald Trump would wade into uh, a race on Capitol Hill and what the impact of this has sort of been so far from him? Yeah, it was interesting. It seemed to be a sort of a klutzy intervention. I don't think it was planned. Uh, the news of him making calls on behalf of Jordan came from people who got the calls, not from Trump. And it was after midnight, I think, that, that Trump finally put out a statement confirming them. It seemed to be that what Trump was trying to do was use this as sort of a, 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 a device for attaining tension to himself. He was entertaining this kind of absurd idea that uh, Republicans in the House would appoint him to be speaker, that's not going to happen. Um, there, there's just not the votes for Donald Trump within the Republican conference. Uh, and, and, and then news came out. And I think that the original plan was he would do that. And then finally endorse Jordan, who's been a longtime ally of him, was, you know, has defended him on television, was working closely with him in the run up to the, um, the January 6th uh, uh, efforts to, to block the certification of the 2020 election. Um, 
we don't know yet how decisive this is. I mean, clearly there are, you know, I think it's more than 100 members of the House have endorsed Trump for president, but that's not the, the 218 you need to become speaker. Um, there are clearly a, as, at least as many um, moderates who come from Biden districts who are very concerned about Trump within the Republican Party as there are Matt Gaetz's uh, within the Republican conference. And so we, we still have a two-man race right now. It's not clear either of those men, Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan, will get get what they need to become speaker. And if they don't, then everything's going to be mixed up again, and, and they're going to have to start over and, and figure out a way forward. Be really interesting. Um, we got time for one more question, Michael. So I got to ask you about this great uh, A1 story you had over the weekend on the last speaker, Kevin McCarthy, uh, who had this sort of sprawling, powerful political network. Um, and now that he's not speaker anymore, I mean, what happens and, and what happens to the Republicans who relied on this? What did you find in your reporting? Yeah, well, I think the, the important part here is that a lot of people think the Speaker of the House or the, minor, the minority leader in the House, um, their main role is with their caucus in Congress. And in recent history, that is not the case. Their, their main role is to raise money. Uh, and increasingly, that money is raised from incredibly wealthy people. So these are you know, individual donors giving $10, 20000000 million. And their relationships are not with the whole House. Their relationships are with um, you know, the, the speaker. In, in, in the Democratic side, it was Nancy Pelosi. It's the, a key reason why she was able to become speaker twice, because after she lost the, you know, Democrats lost control of the House, Democrats weren't ready to get rid of her because she had all those donor relationships. Right now, Kevin McCarthy is the guy with all those donor relationships. And without those donors, Republicans are at an enormous disadvantage going into next year. The second way McCarthy has played an important role that is sort of undercovered is that he has run a machine, part of it's above board, part of it is secret, it's done through dark money groups, it's done through groups you know, called like American Patriots Pack or things like that that don't mean anything, um, to intervene in Republican primaries. Sometimes he's intervening on behalf of Republican incumbents, trying to keep them from far right challengers. Sometimes he's intervening in open primaries. In one case, uh, last cycle, allies of McCarthy intervened in a primary to depose Madison Cawthorn, an incumbent, a member of his caucus, because Cawthorn had so offended Republicans by making claims about sex parties and cocaine use on Capitol Hill. And so without McCarthy there, the fate of that operation, that you know, sort of under, undercover operation to shape who is elected as Republicans uh, is in doubt. And it's not clear that Scalise or Jordan will want to pick up that entire operation or that they'll have the political independence within their caucus to run it as aggressively as McCarthy. And that could have real impacts going forward. If it wasn't for McCarthy, there's a good chance a guy named Anthony Sabatini, for instance, a good friend of Matt Gates, would have been in the House this cycle. Uh, he was defeated in his primary. Uh, he almost certainly would have been another vote against McCarthy. So you know, who who ends up being in the caucus is really determined by these 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 election games that are played and 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 the speaker or the leader of the house has enormous power in shaping that. Yeah, really fascinating political campaign fallout there that we're going to want to watch and I encourage everybody to go over to washingtonpost.com, read this great story by Michael. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. Always love talking politics with you. We're going to have to leave it there for now. Thank you.
Okay, I want to continue the discussion now with two more of our campaign reporters, Marianne Levine and Colby Itkowitz, who are joining the program right now. Welcome to the both of you to uh, to election 2024. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Um, I I want to start with you, uh, Marianne, who you're joining us from from Iowa right now, where Donald Trump was on the trail over the weekend. You saw him. You covered his events. You've talked to, to folks on the trail. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of what did you hear from him and what was the reaction? And was he talking a lot about, you know, sort of the chaos of Washington last week, his courtroom dramas, uh, the trials he's facing and, and the speaker battle that uh, that he's waded into? So Trump did not spend really any time in Iowa talking about the speaker battle. We saw obviously that he weighed in um, endorsing Jim Jordan um, before coming to Iowa, but that was really not a focal point of his speeches over the weekend. His indictments, however, and his legal issues were definitely a big focus in both of the speeches I saw in Iowa. He again alleged the weaponization of the Justice Department. He mentioned that his poll numbers have gone up. In light of the indictments. And we've really seen how Trump has this way of portraying himself as the victim of this broader system. And that's something that really speaks to his supporters. And so um, we saw him again um, attack one of the judges saying that, you know, it's a radical left judge who's overseeing one of the cases he's facing. But it's been interesting to watch how he's tried to use these indictments and um, these legal challenges he's dealing with as a way to rally his base and to rally support as he heads into um, the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, and it looks like that message has, has resonated a lot in Iowa. Colby, I wanted to uh, turn to you and ask you about what's going on in Capitol Hill. You spent some time covering that over the last few days. Um, and, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the Republicans in competition up on the Hill, but what do Democrats think about this? What do Capitol Hill Democrats, what, what is President Biden, what did their allies think about this sort of open and chaotic situation that we are seeing right now up in the Hill. I mean, the Democrats see this as a, as a huge opportunity for them to point to kind of the chaos and dysfunction on the other side of the aisle to convince voters to uh, give them back the House in 2024. Democrats only have to flip a handful of seats and they will have the majority again. The White House also seeing this as a huge opportunity. Republicans have tried to kind of drag Democrats into this, blaming uh, them for McCarthy losing his job. But Democrats feel like they have nothing. Um, McCarthy is holding to McCarthy at all. They, they're mad at him for going down to Mar-a-Lago after January 6th and kind of rehabilitating Trump after many uh, Republicans were openly, including McCarthy, openly furious with him for inciting the riots at the Capitol. Um, they see McCarthy launching you know, what, what they see as a baseless impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And they've seen him break a lot of promises on budget and spending. So for Democrats, they saw no reason to vote and try and help McCarthy out in this case. And now they just get to sit back and um, watch the Republicans fight amongst themselves. Interesting. And Marianne, sticking on the Hill for a second, uh, you had this great story last week with Michael and Maeve Reston about the sort of long arc of Kevin McCarthy's relationship with Donald Trump. I'm curious what you think and what you've made from your reporting about, I mean, how much influence does Donald Trump have on Capitol Hill. You've also spent time up there. You know a lot of the Republicans. Um, are they going to be listening to what he says in the speaker's race and more broadly? Uh, how do you see that? 
Well, I think it's important to differentiate um, House Republicans versus Senate Republicans. He definitely has more influence, particularly with um, House leadership, or at least did with Kevin McCarthy, than he did with um, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. So we've definitely seen a more pronounced influence um, on the House side versus the Senate side. Obviously, still pretty influential there as well, but it's definitely more pronounced in the House. And that's in part because um, an endorsement from Trump can have an even more significant impact in a House race versus a Senate race because you're dealing with smaller um, smaller districts. And so um, it'll be interesting to see what his influence is in the speaker race. I mean, this is a closed um, ballot process from my understanding. And so that might relieve some of the pressure from Republicans to vote for Trump for fear of um, being retaliated against, or sorry, to vote for Jordan uh, for fear of being retaliated against. Um, so I think that um, he, and Kevin McCarthy back in January, credited Trump with 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 him getting the gavel in the end. Trump made calls for McCarthy during a period that was um, where it was uncertain if he was going to clinch the speakership. So in that respect, he did have a lot of influence in that last speaker battle. But um, and he does have influence among the um, harder right members, too, of the party. But you also have to remember that there are Republicans still who want who are there, who are in districts that Biden won. And so for those Republicans, the Trump influence is a little less intense than it is for maybe other members of the caucus. So overall, pretty influential, but um, there are still pockets of the party within the House that don't see him as influential and see him as a potential liability. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And Colby, I wanted to ask you about uh, President Biden switching gears a little bit. Got a jobs report last week that uh, had some positive news about jobs being created. Uh, but when we look at polls right now and we you know, see how Americans and voters think about this economy and they think about President Biden, we're generally seeing, get, we're seeing him get pretty low marks across the board. And I wonder what, what it is that we're seeing here and what the reaction has been in Democratic circles to the fact that, uh, you know, by and large, a lot of Americans are not feeling good about the economy and they are not feeling good about the job that they think that President Biden has done in the economy. I've spent, I've spent some time on the road this year, and whenever I talk to voters and ask them what issue they're concerned about, it is always the economy. They always want to talk about the fact that the price of things is higher now than it was under President Trump. And so even though these economic markers are improving, um, that's not the lived experience for many Americans. And I actually had this exact conversation last week with Senator Bernie Sanders, who said this is a huge issue for Biden because he needs to be able to relate to people and say, okay, Yes, the economies might be doing better in these ways, but it's not going well for them. Prices are still high. Living is just more expensive, and people aren't seeing that reflected in their wages. You know, he talked about tens of millions of Americans are hurting because they don't have enough money to retire. They can't afford prescription drugs. They can't afford to send their kids to college. Like these are all realities for a lot of Americans. And what Senator Sanders said to me is that Biden really has to do his work to not just talk about the economy how the economy has improved under him, but also to recognize the fact that people are hurting and to explain to voters how, if you reelect President Biden and if you elect a Democratic Senate and Democratic House, that there can be more done to improve those, those issues um, for working Americans. Yeah, it seems like that'll be an interesting issue in the next election uh, going into 2024. And Marianne, Donald Trump, obviously the leading Republican candidate uh, at this point to face 
President Biden in the general election, according to all these polls we look at. But we've had two debates, and he has skipped both of them. Um, what are you hearing from Trump, from his campaign, about the debates? Did he talk about this when he was in Iowa? And, and can we expect him to simply not show up as long as these debates continue? Yeah, I mean, on Saturday, um, Trump said in Cedar Rapids that the that he was hearing that they were not that there were going to be no debates after uh, Miami. I mean, there's no evidence that the RNC is going to do that. They have not indicated that that is their plan. So, um, it does seem like the debates will be going on uh, for the foreseeable future. But Trump has basically decided that he's not going to participate in them. His reasoning and his campaign's reasoning is that he's pulling so far ahead that there's no point in him participating. Um, at one point during his rally on Saturday, he said something along the lines of, why should I be on the same stage as someone like Asa Hutchinson, who's polling in the single digits, or as Chris Christie? So this is all part of a broader strategy that we're seeing with the campaign, where they're trying to portray him as inevitable, um, just given how far ahead he is in the polls. And they clearly do not see an upside in him uh, participating in um, the debates for the foreseeable future. So I don't really expect a change, of course. Yeah, it seems like he's been pretty adamant on that front. You mentioned some of the lower polling candidates. I mean, many of them, all of them polling well behind him, some of them barely registering. But Colby, I wanted to ask you, there is, there does seem to be a little bit of movement among some of the non-Trump candidates. You're seeing Nikki Haley, the former UN ambassador, uh, gaining some steam in New Hampshire in the polls. We had some reporting today uh, that shows some of the traction she's gaining in that state. Ron DeSantis, who struggled for a long time in this campaign, has signaled that he's sort of all in on Iowa. He's really moving all of his resources and energy there. But I want to ask you, you know, how much of an impact can these sort of movements have, given how dominant Trump is in this race right now, how strongly Republicans seem to feel about, you know, his message of, of grievance and retribution? Uh, does this stuff, you know, really, really matter in the sense that can it, can it actually change things before people actually start voting early next year? Yeah, I mean, Marianne and I did a story very recently together where we talked to Republicans about Trump's inevitability. And the question that we asked uh, a lot of Republicans in Congress and out across the country is, does it feel like Trump is going to be the Republican nominee? And almost to a person, they said yes. So the polls have not shown um, Trump losing any of the sport. And if anything, he's gained support over the last several months. I think Marianne said this at the top of the program. but. You know, when we were out in the country, when we were out talking to people at the beginning of the year, January, February, you heard a lot in the Republican base talk about wanting to move on for Trump, from Trump, that it was time to move on. And it seemed that there was an opening for someone like Ron DeSantis. But as these legal challenges have mounted for Trump and Trump's been able to portray himself as the victim of this, um, he's able to garner more support. So it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think that the more he gets in trouble legally, maybe the less support he would have, but it's quite the opposite. That Republican, the Republican base thinks that you know there is some system that is out to get Trump, and so they are rallying behind him. Um, you mentioned our colleagues on Hannah Knowles and Dylan Wells had an amazing story today about Nikki Haley and how she's starting to try to really put roots down in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is a place that's pretty independent-minded. There's more moderate voters there. There is a lane for her to certainly um, do well in New Hampshire, but does she catch up with Trump? I mean, that will be made to be seen. But at this point, it doesn't look like anybody can catch Trump. Yeah, the race has felt very steady and constant. We haven't seen a lot of movement at all. Trump seems to have a, a huge amount of support. Um, Marianne, I wanted to, to return to uh, a, a fascinating point Michael made earlier in the conversation, which is that, you know, there's a lot of focus 
globally right now on what's happening in the Middle East and on foreign policy, but it's not an issue that has necessarily been a huge focal point in this presidential campaign so far. So I wanna ask you, what, what is on the minds of voters when you talk to them in Iowa, particularly Republican voters, what are they animated by? What are they interested in right now uh, as you talk to them about kind of what influences their vote and, and what motivates them to turn out in, in the next election? Yeah, and talking to voters this weekend, um, one thing that struck me was that um, the border came up pretty consistently. Like when you asked voters, and again, these were voters at Trump rallies. So it's obviously a self-selecting group of people. But um, but we, um, when, in talking to voters who were attending those rallies, I mean, almost everyone I spoke to listed the border as the top, if not their top issue. And so um, that was definitely something that um, was pretty top of mind for people. Um, abortion is something that's also, um, that's also been important to um, voters out here in Iowa, but um, with Roe versus Wade being overturned, a lot of them are going to, are sort of echoing what Trump has said, which that it's more of a state's issue. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and Colby, I wanted to ask you sort of the flip side of that question, since you spent a lot of time talking to Democratic voters. Um, what are they motivated by? What do they care about? You know, sometimes we hear from strategists that these parties are sort of talking past each other. They're talking about different things and different issues. But but what are you hearing from them? Are they, you know, coming at it from different sides of the same issue? Or are you hearing about entirely different issue sets from Democratic voters who are looking at this race right now? When I talk to Democratic voters, there's one thing that motivates them more than anything, and that is Donald Trump. There isn't a ton of enthusiasm on the Democratic side for Joe Biden. We've seen that show up in polls. They would like to have moved on to the kind of the next generation of Democratic leaders, but they also feel that Trump is such an existential threat to democracy and to freedoms that they will gladly go and pull, you know, or you know, vote for Biden come next November. Uh, and they feel that Biden is still well placed, well positioned to beat Trump in a head-to-head. -head. Um, some polls are suggesting that might not be true, but Democrats are super animated. Um, whenever you talk to them, they just say, we can't let President, we can't let Donald Trump back in the White House. And then there's the issues around voting rights and abortion that are still incredibly animating. You know, they're still fired up about efforts to try to overturn the results in 2020 um, and fear that, you know, if more Republicans were in charge, you might not have fair elections. And they're also really animated by the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. We saw Democrats come out in droves in the 2022 midterms, um, and that allowed Democrats to perform way outperform expectations in those races. And Democrats think that they'll be able to do that again. They'll be able to run on those messages, even in some of the red states where they have some vulnerable Senate candidates. Um, this idea that you would do a total ban on an abortion on abortions um, is not popular. Uh, so there is maybe some middle ground to be found there, but they think that if they can point to Republicans trying to take away all of those rights, that their voters will that voters will come out for Democrats next year. And just to follow on follow up on that really briefly, I mean, do, do Democratic voters you talk to have they sort of concluded that Donald Trump is going to be uh, the Republican nominee? That that's going to be the person that that President Biden is going to be running against. I mean, we see all these polls and, and they show that he has a huge lead, but I'm curious how this sort of filters down to actual voters. Do they see this as the, you know sort of a foregone conclusion? Or are they thinking about what happens if it isn't Donald Trump? Or what happens if another Republican emerges as the Republican nominee? Yeah, that's a great question. 
and maybe is a good target for us next time we're out there talking to voters. But um, whenever I talk to voters about this race, they talk as if Trump is inevitable. They'll, they talk about keeping Trump out of the White House. They talk about Biden being able to beat Trump. Um, sometimes they'll have the caveat of like, well, unless he's in jail. Um, but then the secondary question of who that would be doesn't come up as much because they'd see, you know, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and Tim Scott failing to gain traction. And that, the you know, Trump takes up all the oxygen in the room. He still, you know, garners more headlines than anyone, more, you know, earned media than anyone. And so it's just really hard to compete against that um, for these Republican candidates. And Democrats are seeing that as much as Republicans are seeing that. And so Democrats are really already starting to think about, okay, how do we beat Donald Trump? How do we do that again? Um, and I think the White House and the Biden campaign is doing the same. And Marianne, I'll give you the last word here. It seems like that sense of inevitability, as Colby talked about with the earlier story you guys did, also starting to set in on the Republican side, even among some supporters of other candidates uh, as well out on the trail. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a broader sense, even when you talk to voters, um, that Trump will be the nominee. I mean, for that story, we also spoke to local officials in some of the swing states. Um, Colby um, talked to someone in Pennsylvania. I spoke to um, Senator Kevin Kramer, who's actually like endorsed um, Doug Burgum, but even he said it seems like Trump is going to be the nominee. So there is just this broader sense of um, inevitability that's growing. Um, obviously, if you talk to some of the voters who are going to other candidate events, um, they feel differently about Trump because they're weighing um, they're weighing supporting someone like Pence or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley. Um, but one thing that has also struck out to, stuck out to me is from speaking to voters out in Iowa and in other areas of the country is just the impact of the indictments. And I, I've had conversations with some voters who say, you know, I was leaning towards someone else, but the indictments are getting me really angry and I'm now leaning towards supporting Trump. So that's definitely, um, I think, part of this broader inevitability sense that people are feeling, where you have this combination of the polling numbers and also the indictments that really do appear to be helping him politically. Yeah, that's certainly something we'll definitely have to watch going into next year and uh, you know how that is perceived in a general election as well. But really, really fascinating stuff from both of you. Marianne Levine, Colby Itkowitz, thank you so much to both of you for joining us on the program. Hope to have you back on soon. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.